We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Good morning. Today is, oh, I see my my video isn't right here. Let's see if I can change it a little bit. All right. Today is May 3rd, and I'm glad to be here. My name is Scott Shiro. For those of you who are new to the program, I'm Grace's dad. And one of the reasons that Grace died prematurely was to save others and to wake others up. And for me personally, it's woken me up to how much I've been programmed. And that's why this program is called Deprogramming with Grace's Dad. It has now become one of the many tentacles of the full-time advocacy uh, that I have um, become um, accustomed to since the last uh, roughly 16 months now, uh, being a full-time advocate since Grace's death. Grace died about 18 months ago on October 13th of 2021, but we didn't know which way was up until a couple months into it. So we'll always start with uh, something neat about Grace, and I try to relate it to the guests if I can, and today I can, which is pretty neat. So Don, can you bring up the two pictures of Grace playing softball first? All right, so you can see the ball coming in. You can see her stance. She's ready to, to crank it out. All right, then the next one, she's getting ready for the field. This is with our grandson, Riley. And then we'll play a short clip of Grace coming into home plate. Come on home, Grace! So we did everything with Grace. There was no restrictions. We never looked at her through the eyes of somebody having Down syndrome. We just looked at her as a gift from God. And so she played softball on a regular team. Everybody welcomed her and, and we just had a lot of fun. So now we're gonna bring in a picture of John. So I'm not telling you John who yet, playing basketball. All right, and then we'll bring in the picture of Ken. I won't tell you Ken who yet, playing football. So then I, I ask, what do all three of these people have in common? And what it is, is they were all champions. So Don, can you bring John and Ken in now, please? Thanks, guys. So what we've got here is quite a special program. Ken Rutgers and John Stockton, uh, both champions. Uh, unbelievable. When I did some of the homework. I mean, I grew up in the time when these guys were playing. So, you know, they're my age, which is which is pretty neat. But to go back and look at what they accomplished in their time period as professional, Ken is a professional football player and John is a professional basketball player, it's hard to grasp. But what I saw was the most important statistic was they both played for the same team their entire career which uh, that was phenomenal. Ken, of course, played for the Green Bay Packers, where I'm from, and John played for the Utah Jazz. So these guys are doing something really neat. We're in the same boat. And I've titled today's program, John Stockton and Ken Rutgers are still in the game. Do not surrender to evil. So what are they doing? You're going to find out in a little bit, but I want to start out by introducing what they're doing by having Don play a short clip from Sideline Sanity with Michelle Tafoya. So why are they on the show today? 
Well, both of them have taken a lot of heat for speaking out against vaccine mandates and mask mandates. Ken Rutgers has a wife who has suffered from a vaccine injury. John Stockton is outspoken and believes in freedom of medical choice. They've put a lot on the line to just say what they believe and take the slings and arrows that come along with it. And so they've been called names like crazy and lunatics. And are they? These two started their uh, joining forces. They have their own podcast, which we'll talk about later, but they started Voices for Medical Freedom. So we're going to start jumping in with, with why you guys are doing this. So we'll start with you, Ken. What led you to speak out about vaccines? Yeah, well, you know, it was early 2021. My wife was uh, in uh, available for the first rollout. She took the Moderna shot and immediately had severe neurological reactions, swollen lymph nodes, numbing all her scalp and her face. And it just got progressively worse over the weeks and then eventually months. And she's still battling that today. So it's been over two years. And, uh, you know, she'd done some research and there wasn't a lot out there, but she kept hearing safe and effective. And, and all of a sudden she finds herself in the situation in ER rooms, hospitals, visits to neurologists, uh, and they're all stumped and they can't figure out why. And they to do scans and MRIs and rule out things. And eventually she found a group of other women, a lot of them doctors, and joined that group and they went on a crusade together and wrote the white house and the cdc and fda and eventually i helped uh help them to start because they were fearful of getting canceled by youtube and which was kind of their only lifeline these groups of thousands of injured people all they had was each other uh, as a lifeline and eventually i got a hold of senator ron johnson uh and we went out and did a uh, a press conference in Milwaukee almost two years ago. So what's the, what was her perspective and your perspective on vaccines before, before this one, this isn't even a vaccine, it's a bioweapon, but before this supposed vaccine even came out, what was your perspective? Yeah, I, I, my perspective was, um, kind of a, a, a very distant perspective from the sidelines. Um, leery of the vaccines, but not real well informed. Um, but I didn't do the flu shot. I just figured, you know, I'm healthy and, you know, I didn't never had problems fending stuff off. So I'm not, not a big vaccine advocate, nor am I a big or nor was I a big, you know, anti-vax guy. So just kind of living my life and trying to eat healthy and work out and live my life and yeah. So you had never done a dive into vaccines before? No. So just I mean, kind of the typical, you know, we kind of grew up that way with the vaccine culture. Yeah. I mean, I, I was born in 62, so I'm sure I had a couple early on and um, our, we had three children and our youngest, she did have a reaction early on uh, as a baby. And so then we kind of got a little bit like, hey, look, if this isn't an absolute need, then, you know, we're not going to do it. But we didn't take a deep dive into it. We kind of moved on. And, and uh, but boy, even since 
our youngest was born 31 years ago. Uh, you know, they've had a, they've had a lot of vaccines and shots and all kinds of things into, uh, neonatal care and, and the children's, uh, vaccine schedule. I think there's close to 80 shots now required to follow the, the schedule. John, you've been in, involved with um, being against vaccines for quite a bit longer. What What's your story as to why you were were against them and how did you, what type of research have you done? Well, I was a slow convert too. I, uh, my, our oldest is about 35 years old. And so we, we, our first three, we vaccinated according to schedule to a point. Um, and I, my mom was a nurse. My sister was a nurse. I, I mean, I was fine. I took the flu shot the first couple of years I was uh, a player. Um, and then we had a chiropractor on our team who I thought was a quack. I, I mean, I, I followed all the, all the propaganda against those guys for years. And so when the team had a chiropractor, I said, this guy, yeah, right. You guys go ahead and enjoy him. And, and what, what happened is I went the medical route a couple of years, got an, a cortisone shot in my back. My back still hurt, you know, all these things continue as an athlete and you just keep taking stuff for it. If you follow that method. And I went into his office one day and kind of gave in and, and he fixed it, fixed my back that I had already taken a shot for and it didn't work. He also fixed a tendonitis in my leg that I took anti-inflammatories for, for a year and a half in five minutes, he fixed it. And by the way, two of the anti-inflammatories that I took were are illegal. Now they were banned because they hurt people. They, they hurt the people's hearts. So you know, even after 10 years of rigorous testing, meds aren't good for you. So, so I got, kind of got that. I still wasn't sold on vaccines. He told me, like, you might want to take a look with your kids. Maybe they don't need the vaccines, things like that. So I did. I, I, first of all, I called him crazy for that thought. And then slowly I read on it and then he gave me another book. I read on that. And then I started watching, kept my eyes open. So by the time COVID rolled around 30 years, had passed. I was fully set. I, I know the damage caused by the vaccine. I know the autism used to be one in 10,000. Now it's one in 33. Right. Uh, and it's all since the act, you know, 1986, when they, when right. they um, freed the pharmaceutical companies from any blame or any, any consequences. So, so it's pretty easy to follow. So now here we are many years later, you see this disease come out, they scare the heck out of people and they tell them this vaccine's going to work. They haven't tested. So I was ready for it, but I wasn't, I wasn't a speaker. Uh, I didn't want to, I was fine with my family not doing it, but whatever anybody else wanted to do, that's up to them. What kind of forced my hand a little bit was my old alma mater, Gonzaga, uh, who I'd had many conversations with the, the people higher up in the in the uh, university that felt like we were on the same page. And then I turned around and they had vaccine stations on campus. They demanded vaccines to watch games. They demanded masks to watch games or, or test negative tests. And I, you know, I thought it was wrong. And I'm, so I decided not to wear a mask at the games. I was, I felt like I was misleading the students across from me and, um, you know, and I'm invisible. I, I think they would see that, Hey, you're, you're on board. Let's we're all doing it. We're all doing our thing. And I just felt wrong about that. I felt the duty to, to show these kids that, that, you know, we're, first of all, Americans, nobody has the right to make us take medicine of any kind or drug or a poison in this case. Nobody has a right to make us wear a mask um as a as a form of entering a school anyway you can see where i i, I felt a sudden sense of duty and uh then it snowballed they took my tickets away uh in a friendly manner i'm still friends with people down there it's, it's my home away from home frankly and uh yeah they took my tickets away and they kind of forced my hand a little bit so that's why i'm that got me started but now i've seen and spoke sorry i'm talking too much seen and talked to so many people that have been harmed by it 
Uh, I've had my own witnesses. I've, I've had seen the research by people that are way smarter than me and uh, just impossible to stay quiet. Well, I, I agree. Once you see the research, uh, you cannot no. see that. It's hard to it's hard to grasp. I mean, the lack of testing and yet they sell it to us through propaganda um, and and people don't spend they don't invest the time like like the three of us have. So what what type of things have happened, both positive and negative because of jumping into this this fight john why don't you go first for me it's been mostly positive um i mean i i there's been a few friendships that have been more than a little bit stressed um if people have thought poorly of me uh, other than newspapers i mean newspapers uh local newspaper took some shots they had what factcheck.com said i was out of my mind and even though you have the facts and you have the pictures and the names and the dates and you you know whatever newspaper articles they say you're out you're off your rocker um, so publications like that have taken their shots in person. I've had great experiences. People coming up to me saying, look, I saved you. You saved my life. I've had other people saying, thank you. I don't have a voice. I'd like to have a voice. Um, but nobody hears me and, and thanks for speaking out. So overall it's been, you know, tremendously positive and, uh, it, it kind of strengthens and boldens me a little bit to, to speak a little bit more. Cause I know there's, most of us are, are seeing it this way. Unrelated, I forgot to ask you. So this chiropractor that you met, which is phenomenal. For those of you who don't know, John played until he was 41 years old. So I'm assuming you sent him a thank you note for letting you play so Yeah, much. I actually bought him a horse. I was so grateful. He was, uh, he liked to do cutting horses. And so I don't know if I bought him a good one. I did the best I could, but uh yeah, he was so special and instrumental in my 19 years. I, I don't know what I'd have done without him. Uh, he fixed everything, everything. Naturally, that's, uh, that's we have a we have a friend who is a chiropractor. We went to high school with her, and she's really um, come alongside us with this fight. And I can't say enough good things about her either. All right, so uh, Ken, same question: positive and negative reactions to you jumping in this fight? Yeah, I think you know it's it's uh, put a rift, you know, between a few family members uh, and a handful of friends, uh, and I think that's you know that's pretty common. Um, from what I hear out there and, you know, what, what, one of the things I hear, which is true for me is, you know, I've lost a couple friends. I've made a lot of, a lot of new friends and, and good friends. And, uh, and, you know, the newspaper, I think probably the biggest public like newspaper or radio or was, uh, was in part of what John and I, why we, why we decided to start voices for medical freedom over a year and a half ago is you, we started seeing athletes, dying on Great. the field, on the pitch, on the court, um, going down, collapsing, sometimes dying. Uh, Damar Hamlin comes to mind, who was a recent NFL Monday Night Football guy that uh, is fortunate to be alive. Um, but early on in that, uh, I talked to uh, a fact checker, and that, that's these days is a loosely used term uh, uh, with the Washington Post about the uh, athletes going down and I said, look, the data is out there. The, you know, the data is there to look at, to, to see goodscienceing.com. You can find all the names and there's several sources, but good science is one of them. And I said, you know, it's, it's, 
and and he actually was uh, was fact checking some things John had said, as well as Senator Ron Johnson from Wisconsin. And so, so Senator Johnson sick this guy on me, and uh, so we had a conversation. And you know, uh, <clears throat> I said, well, you know, look. The first thing I said was, you know, we started. I started talking. With, I was on a phone interview with the with the reporter, and I said, you know, we started talking about the issue. And I said, you know, before we get any further, you know, you're a fact checker, so you know, what's the fact that you're checking? I mean, we haven't talked about the fact you're checking. He said, well, you know, there, it's not really a fact. And I started laughing. I'm like, wait a second, you're a fact checker without a fact. I said, man, that's got to be a really tough job. My hat, my hat goes off to you. He goes, well, it was really something he said. And I go, oh, okay, well, what did Senator Johnson say? You know, can you give me the quote so I know the context of what we're talking about? He goes, well, it's it's really less about the quote and what it means. And I, I chuckled again. I said, wow. So you're interpreting, I mean, talk about a straw man fallacy, right? I said, yeah. Right. And uh, I said, so you're interpreting it. Well, what? so tell me. He said, well, he's... He's raising this ruckus about all these athletes going down. And I said, okay, well, it seems to me, you know, and, and I have my PhD in sociology. I'm a college professor. And I said, it seems like a scientific method. Method, You know, you see the data, you make an observation, you, you, you're observing and something's changed. And you go, hey, I have a hypothesis. It seems like there's a lot of athletes going down. That's what the data indicates or suggests. And what Senator Johnson said was, I think we need to study this. This seems alarming. I said that that's science. And then you go out and you do the you do a study, you know. To, and then there's lots of different ways to do research. And, and you and you then the the it either confirms your hypotheses or it, or it uh, you know negates your your hypotheses. And uh, boy, uh, you know, it was interesting. He he just completely threw all of us under the bus big time. But, you know, that's the bias of the media, you know, and and the, and of course, um, you know, being canceled, you know, by YouTube um, in different interviews. Um, our Voices for Medical Freedom was canceled by YouTube. Uh, you know, we got put in YouTube jail, which I, I kind of suspected. But, you know, that's why I think for both of us, uh, but for me, you know, for sure. Uh, but I think that's true for John as well, because we talk about um liberty and freedom and autonomy and the and, and the ability to have that freedom and exercise that freedom our freedom of voice our freedom of speech yeah it's interesting that that reporter um you were attempting to wake him up on the phone but he he was uh, hell-bent on his position i had a reporter call right after we filed the lawsuit and she asked me if i thought that grace was taken out because she had Down syndrome. I said, yes, I do. And then she asked me, are you a conspiracy theorist? And I said, well, people like you want to label me that, but what if I showed you a document that proves it? So I emailed her the document and we went through it together and I could hear her waking up on the call. And wow. then, then we postponed the call and she's agreed to come. She wants to interview me face to face instead of over the phone. So wow, was, well, good for you. I don't think I woke this guy up. I don't think <laughs> I put a dent. I mean, this guy is so ideologue uh, and philosophically utopian. It's like, nah, it's he's he's drinking, he's drinking the Kool-Aid and not putting the cup down. 
you know, I'm going to ask you some questions about the public pool system later, but you kind of led into that, but we'll get back to that with your straw man, the fallacies. And, you know, we were taught differently in our generation. We were taught logic and it's not, it doesn't apply anymore. Uh, what, so we can just leave that hang for a bit. So now I, I want to, before I, there's another clip I want to play here, but before I do, what has been the most surprising thing to each one of you after you decided to go public and start speaking out? And Ken, you can go first. Um, I, I think just the, boy, that's a tough question. I, I think just the gratitude that so many people have, I, I was surprised by the gratitude that so many people had that said, man, thank you so much for speaking out. And, uh, you know, because you're, because of the status, because of who I used to be, it's like so weird. Right. And, right. and, you know, to, to one of your comments earlier, it's like, and John kind of alluded to this too. Uh, you know, once you see, you know, and, and the blinds have been taken off your eyes and, and you, you can see and hear the truth, you can't, you have to speak the truth. And of course it happened to my wife and I met a lot of the people that, uh, and we've interviewed people that also were injured and you start seeing this and it's just such an injustice and such evil. And uh, you just can't help but speak out. And so just the amount of people that are that were so are so grateful uh, for anybody, I think, who's willing to speak out. But I think people that have oh, that, you know, are are have a status that they've been given that that um, that privilege. Yeah, that's uh, I'm glad you've had that experience. What about you, John? It's like a surprise triangle, really. Um, I've been completely surprised by the venom um, that you see on the negative end when when people not <laughs> you have opportunity. I've had people approach me. I mentioned friends that that you lose a few friends that approach me with such anger and hostility, and I simply respond like, like, like "Hey, we're getting this different information. Why don't we sit down and talk?" No way, no way. I never want to speak. You get, you go, wow. Why, why that venom when you have a relationship to begin with? Why not sit down and talk? Why not call me in advance to say, hey, John, I think you're out of line. Let's talk about it. So that surprised me. Right. I've also been surprised at the next, the next angle is the tremendous amount of reach by people to, to try to connect. Um, willingness to give their time, their effort, their, their knowledge, their expertise to, to connect with anybody. I mean, we're, we're pretty, Ken and I are pretty humble. Our voices for many medical freedom podcasts starting out. We're in our, we're in our infancy a little bit and incredible people are reaching out to us to come talk to us or let us talk to them. Uh, Ed Dowd just recently with cause unknown who did the best selling book on, uh, you know, he's the portfolio manager for BlackRock that, I mean, his book sold gazillions with actual names, faces, QR codes of injured and, and, and um, killed death deaths caused by this and explains it all it's a phenomenal book anyway these types of people have been reaching out to us and participating on a whim just drop everything and do it and they do that all over the place so that's the other angle the one that that we have no control or that really bothers me is that we see the we see the data every single day we see people real people telling their stories and the damage and, and how awful and how this is the tip of the iceberg and we're, we're not going to see reproductive issues and, and chronic issues for years on this. And then you turn around, turn the TV on, and the FDC, FDA has authorized 
these shots for three-year-olds who have never been at risk. And those type, the CDC will say, uh, yeah, continue the shots. We still recommend them, even though the government's no longer mandating. You know, I, I, I can't even fathom how that can be. Uh, that's my biggest surprise. They just ignore their own data, their own admissions, and continue with these policies. It's uh, unbelievable. Yeah, I, uh, I couldn't agree more with that. And you know, regarding people speaking out and, and helping, I've seen that too. I've seen those two extremes, of course, but the one that has been by far and away the most help, and I saw that she was on your show, is Vera Sherov. She's been quite a gift to our family. Uh, I picked up the phone and just called on a whim one day last July, and unbelievably, we became we became fast friends. And uh, she just turned 86 years old, and you would not guess that. I mean, she's sharp as a tack. So I, I want to uh, change gears a bit, and we're going to play a clip about how people obey authority, and then I'm going to get your perspective on it. So this is a little bit longer clip than I use, usually play. It's five minutes long, but it's well worth it. So, Don, can you play the uh, Obeying Authority programming clip? Please? One of the most famous studies of obedience in psychology was carried out by Stanley Milgram, a psychologist at Yale University. He conducted an experiment focusing on the conflict between obedience to authority and personal conscience. In 1963, Milgram examined justifications for acts of genocide offered by those accused at the World War II Nuremberg war criminal trials. Their defense often was based on obedience, that they were just following orders from their superiors. Milgram devised the experiment to answer the question. Could it be that those who committed such atrocities in the Holocaust were just following orders? Could we call them all accomplices? Milgram wanted to investigate whether Germans were particularly obedient to authority figures, as this was a common explanation for the Nazi killings in World War II. Milgram selected participants for his experiment by newspaper, advertising for male participants to take part in a study of learning at Yale University. The procedure was that the participant was paired with another person and they drew lots to find out who would be the learner and who would be the teacher. The draw was fixed so that the participant was always the teacher and the learner was an actor hired pretending to be a real participant. The learner, who was an actor called Mr. Wallace, was taken into a room and had electrodes attached to his arms and the teacher and researcher went into a room next door that contained an electric shock generator and a row of switches marked from 15 volts, which is a slight shock, to 375 volts, which had a danger reading of severe shock and up to 450 volts, which is enough to kill a human being. Get me out of here, please. Continue, please. Go right The experiment requires you continue, teacher. Please continue. Participants were comprised of 40 males aged between 20 and 50, whose job ranged from unskilled to professional. They were paid $4.5 just for turning up to the study. At the beginning of the experiment, they were introduced to the other participant, which was the actor taking on the role as the learner. The experimenter, who was also an actor, was dressed in a grey lab coat played by an actor, not Mulgram himself. Two rooms in the Yale laboratory were used, 
one for the learner with an electric chair and another for the teacher and the experimenter with an electric shock generator. The learner, Mr. Wallace, was strapped to a chair by electrodes. After he had learned a list of paired words given to him to learn, the teacher tests him by naming a word and then asking the learner to recall its partner or pair from a list of four possible choices. The teacher is told to administer an electric shock every time the learner made a mistake. The learner gave many wrong answers on purpose, and for each of these, the teacher gave him an electric shock. When the teacher refused to administer a shock, the experimenter was to give a series of orders and prods to ensure that they continue. There were four prods, and if one was not obeyed, then the experimenter, who was called Mr. Williams, read out the next prod, and so on. The four prods were, firstly, please continue. Secondly, the experiment requires you to continue. Three, it is absolutely essential that you continue. Four, you have no other choice but to continue. So what were the results of the study? Morgan found that 65%, almost two thirds of the participants, the participants who played the role as the teachers administering the electric shock, continued to the highest levels of 450 volts. All the participants continued to at least 300 volts. Mulgram did more than one experiment. In fact, he carried out 18 variations of a study, all with similar results. So this can't be taken as once-off random and a non-occurring event. All he did was alter the situation to see how this affected obedience. From the results of the study, Mulgram developed a theory called the agency theory. Mulgram explained the behavior of his participants by suggesting that people have two states of behavior when they are in a social situation. The first is the autonomous state. People direct their own actions and they take responsibility for the results of those actions. Then there is the agentic state. People allow others to direct their actions and then pass off the responsibility for those consequences to the person giving the orders. In other words, they act as agents for another person's will. Uh, boy, every time I see that, it is uh, hard to hard to stomach. You know, when I first saw that after Grace died, I thought, "Well, this is this is what's going on in these hospital settings." You know, I'm in the hospital murder lane. That's you. Know, you guys are in the vaccine lane, but I mean, I witnessed hospital murder. With what I've uncovered, it seems that this is today. This experiment, by the way, took place in 1963. You know, so that's 60 years ago. That's the year I was born. You know, so you know now you think our moral culture is substantially worse. So what, the reason I played this is I wanted to get your your sense about how people have become zombies in our culture. And so, John, why don't you go first? What's your reaction to to this? Well, video? I, as I watched it, that's this is Ken's bailiwick. I'll tell you, he he knows that he knows that test inside and out. But it does show you what uh, I mean. You see it every day, um, it, and it doesn't have to be a lab coat guy. Somebody that shows some authority, uh, give a person any person a badge, um, and that's not to disparage anybody that's a policeman or fireman or anybody that carries a badge. Um, there's there's a, an adherence to authority, and uh, and I'm always amazed what humans will do to humans. Uh, anyway, you know I. I studied the Nazi, the Nazi time. My dad was very interested. He couldn't believe that humans could do that. I remember sitting in there watching TV with couldn't believe humans could do that to other humans. So it's always been an intrig intriguing thing for me. And 
uh, never ceases to amaze me. And, and I am shocked every time I see that thing. And I wonder how much juice I would put on it. You know, yeah, we know the test, so I wouldn't put any. But had right. I not know the test, just how far would I go? And I, I think you have to be able to look in the mirror and ask yourself those questions. It's a hard one. That's impressive because that is right. If it wasn't by God's grace, we could all do the same thing that we're experiencing. Uh, Ken, what is your your thought? So you've you know with your with your PhD and your background, obviously you have <clears throat> drilled this down a lot more than most. Yeah, well, you know, I just taught this uh, section in my sociology in the intro to sociology at college uh, just a couple weeks ago, and and I show. Uh, they've done a lot of reenactments on Milgram's study, and it, and it holds true today, even though Milgram's, it's interesting, Milgram, some of these social psychology experiments have come under uh, attack recently. And I, I'm curious about that because the reenactments, when they duplicate the studies, they get very similar results. But not only Milgram's study, which, which to me is fascinating because the people, the test subjects were not threatened uh, with going into a concentration camp or uh, being executed, which is what the you know what what was happening in Nazi Germany, and it still had almost two thirds compliance. But then you also have Ash's group conformity uh, experiment, you know, with the lines and and uh, you have a test subject, and you know, it, maybe what we might call today is peer pressure. Uh, so it's yeah. basically a peer pressure study, and again, the amount of people that are willing to go along. Um, with their peers. So you have, you have uh, Milgram study, with, which is the um, uh, influence of authority. So when you have our, you know, our government and you have figureheads in our government saying safe and effective, and you have uh, Anthony Fauci standing up and saying safe and effective and bricks and the rest of them. And we have, you know, although we have less trust today in our government than we did, you know, a few years ago, uh, you know, we give them that authority of influence in our lives. And then you put Zimbardo's uh, Stanford prison study in the mix of that social psychology space. And I think one of the, um, one of the really interesting um, perspectives on this was uh, Ron Jones, who was a high school teacher. Uh, and, and one of his students was befuddled and said, and he was teaching history. And one of his students said, how in the world could these German not, how could they do this? And he conducted kind of an impromptu study over about three or four days at his high school and basically uh, reestablished kind of this Nazi culture. They didn't call it Nazi. They called it the third wave and they had uh, and it just took over the school. And on the third or fourth day, he had a big assembly and, and basically and he had students snitching on other students. And and so then I put it out to my students and I say, OK, I want you for for you know a, an assignment uh, to to apply these studies to today's culture, hint hint the last three years of COVID, and uh, you know and they still have a bit of a stretch. Now you're talking you know eighteen to twenty five year olds, so you know th they're still got a lot of uh, I I you know eyes to be open and ears to to hear, but um, but they're you know it's it's a process, it's a process, but it is. Um, it, it does show you how influential um, authority is, uh, peer pressure, structures in our society are. It's crazy. I, I, I always thought, I'm impressed. Oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. I just wonder no, if no, a follow-up study that. could be on that. I, I wonder what happened to the guys that were turning the dial once they found out, look, this was a test, nobody's hurt. 
and that realization hits him that I just would have killed a guy by turning that up. I'm one of those guys. And I wonder if they would defend that position or, if you know, to me, that'd be the fascinating post study. Did they do any of those, Ken? I haven't seen any of those, but, you know, I show a, a British reenactment. It's a fairly modern day reenactment of, of Milgram's uh, study. And they show a couple people where they had thought they would uh, administered a lethal electrical shock. And then the, the, uh, the actor that's in the other room comes in and the relief and just like, oh, I'm, you know, because you think you, you think you killed somebody and now there's a relief on that. But, you know, I think also along those same lines, John, I think, you know, if we if we have trust in our medical community and we have trust in our government and our military and our media and we feel betrayed by those people and and, and all of a sudden now, what do you do with with that betrayal of trust? Who do you trust in, in, in you know, we're living in such a fear society with what the WEF has come up with this, you know, poly crisis statement of, you know, we've got the war, we've got UFOs, we've got climate change, we've got pandemics. And, and so all of a sudden now, if the people that you trust or the institutions that you trust are no longer trustworthy, boy, that's going to be unsettling for a lot of people. That's uh, that's right on. Did you just call it a pen pandemic? I like that term, meaning by the stroke of a pen, they can make a. I think. I mean, maybe that was a Freudian slip, but I maybe I like yeah, that. maybe that's we just good. coined a new uh, a new term. <laughs> a pandemic. Oh my gosh! Yeah, that's uh, that's good. Uh, so, you know, all three of us went to grade school in the late '60s, early '70s. You know, they they started the vaccine culture even before then. But I mean, we were all corralled into the gymnasium. We, you know, you everybody you just didn't think anything of it. They were also, I don't know if you guys had the same weekly readers that we received, but in kindergarten, um, I can distinctly remember one of the weekly readers saying that is it is irresponsible to have more than two children. This is when I was in kindergarten. And so you think they are already indoctrinating us into population control. And, you know, you have to build that. This has been going on for uh, at least since the beginning of the 1900s. And I say that even with more confidence after this last weekend, we were uh, reviewing Martin Luther's posting of the 95 Theses in 1517. And he was only 34 years old when he posted the 95 Theses. He was homeschooled. So how do I know that? Because in the 1940s is when the first idea of public education came into existence by Horace Mann, and then it became compulsory in 1980. At the same time when all really started, you know, dollars, the, um, the you know the entire federal tax system, every everything happen then. So, I mean, this has been going on for well over a hundred years. So the question I have, and this gets back to Ken, you mentioned about the straw man fallacy and, you know, there's, you know, red herrings. There's, you know, I don't know that I learned those terms back when I was in school, but there was certainly a push to teach us critical thinking, logic, the scientific method. So then but the question I have for both of you, and we'll start with Ken, is what do you think about the role of the public fool system in this indoctrination? 
Well, you know, I grew up in California, so California had already thrown out the whole logic and rhetoric uh, aspects of that, you know, kind of middle school years where, where you know, the, the trivium as far as an educational philosophy of, of teaching to where kids are. Um, the California had already thrown all that out and were, uh, ditched phonics. And so we put our kids into a classical education um, program uh, in Green Bay, Wisconsin, when, when we were playing, when I was playing there. And, uh, and I backfilled my, my logic and rhetoric uh, knowledge through my kids' education. But, but you know, I'm, I've tried to pass that on to my students. They have no idea about fallacies and arguments and logic and rhetoric and and uh and i i it's hard not to think there's a good reason for that because one of the you know when you think about what's the functional purpose of education it's to socialize our it's to socialize our young people so that they're ready to be good citizens to obey their you know the and we're teaching them uh, yeah i think the, the our public school system is uh and yeah, I'm going to say it seems worthless to me. And I, and I love teachers. I'm a teacher and, and, uh, but yeah, what we're teaching is worth, I have to backfill my own students who are in college that, that most of them can't even name the three federal branches of our government independently. I, I know it's, it's, and I say, yeah. and this is a self, this is a self-governing society, man, you know, you can't. It, it presumes a self-governing society presumes common sense, critical thinking, uh, and, and it's been trained out. Well, John, what are your thoughts on that? A lot uh, less versed in the public school stuff. I grew up in a neighborhood called the Little Vatican, right in the campus of Gonzaga University and St. Aloysius Church and St. Aloysius Grade School. So I never knew anything different than Catholic school training. Now, now it was great. I mean, we had the nuns and they... <laughs> They insisted on a lot of things that some people thought were harsh, but I think I thought they were solid as a rock and, and always ended up having great relationships with the nuns for years and years and years afterwards. So uh, very impressed with that. Now, one thing I didn't, and, and I have to confess to being blind a little bit to the change. I know it's somewhere along my education, history gave way to social studies. And I thought, well, maybe I don't remember what grade that was, but let's say it was seventh grade. I said, okay, well, we're a little different look. We're going to look at the world differently now. And I said, no big deal. But it occurred to me that it never history never really came back in. History was one of my favorite classes. And um, getting back to the religious stuff a little bit, one of the priests at our church that, that gives the best talks now, and I look forward to them, he always gives a historical perspective on what he's talking about, which I love. Because when you think about you know, our religious figures for us, it's, it's Jesus in this case, uh, you think about what the life and time was then if you're just going strictly by sometimes the words that you read you kind of go well, how does that apply to us but when you get a historical perspective of what those people were facing at that time and what those decisions were at that time you get a real much much better feel for it uh now it's also why i try to read a lot of books so i'm not just trusting you know the narratives of what's in school so i've been blind to the educational part i didn't see the changes coming now i see it everywhere i see see it in schools. I see it in, in cartoons with my grandkids, how they, they're, they're trying to change what they believe moving in. And it's not in a way that I approve of. Yeah, that's, uh, that's uh, very well said. So what do you think outside of this programming that we've all been subject to? What do you 
believe prevents others from speaking out. So the three of us have chosen to speak out, but why aren't there more? I would think there would be, the you know, the majority by far would speak out. So John, why don't you go first? Why? Yes. I, I think people want to be liked. I mean, I want to be liked. I want to, I want uh, people to think highly of me. I mean, that's part of the reason I'm doing this. Uh, and it's hard to meet disapproval. It's hard. And, and again, I don't know. I don't know. I, for me, it's easier to answer why I'm not that way. And I think it's because my parents raised us to be uh, competitors, raised us to, to not whine about things. I used to cry that my brother would always beat me up on the basketball court. My dad said, well, don't go play with the big kids then. You know, no sympathy. Uh, my coach used to run us for hours after practice. I'd come home. The coach is working me too hard. No sympathy. So I, I think that, that so much it comes down to parents need to be parents. Uh, politicians need to be parents for their constituents. Priests need to be parents to the to their uh, congregations. Uh, I think there's a general feeling of it, trying to be everybody's buddy versus trying to do your role in society and being good mentors in whatever role you have. Well, I, I'm laughing because I remember, you know, so I would say also say teachers should be teachers in that category. So I went through the public school system, but, you know, the the thing is, is teachers in my day, I mean, they would give you a whack. You, know, you got out of line, you got a whack. And then, you know, the whack, you're, the whack wasn't so bad. But then the next thing they would do is call your parents and then you got whacked again. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> you know, that, uh, that shaped us, you know, so that I, I agree with you. It seems to be part of, you know, the generation we grew up in, um, you know, you had to, you had to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and I mean, they put a the fear of God in you, and it was it was good. Um, Ken, what, what about your your perspective of why don't people? Speak yeah, I, you know, I think I, I think John wasn't wasn't saying that that, uh, and John, correct me if I'm. Uh, I don't think you mean when you say government being parents and priests being. I don't think you mean codependent snowplow helicopter parents. I think you mean like a responsible adult parents make a responsible yes. decision instead of fluffing over it and saying whatever yeah. you're doing is okay yes yeah and allowing consequences to do a lot of the teaching with some empathy but uh you know like like your dad said you know hey you know if you don't want to you know don't play with the big kids and then you had to make that decision yeah. based on those consequences and and are better off for today um why do uh why aren't people speaking out um I think people are busy. Um, they're distra they're distracted by a thousand different opportunities to binge on Netflix, to to post selfies that have been photoshopped, and and uh, and uh, you know to get likes. Um, de definitely, you know, we're we're uh, a very self centered um, society. I think that's growing. I think fear also. Um, so I think uneducated, you know, uh, the lack of in information. So a lot of uninformed people. I, I remember doing a, an interview for a print magazine or newspaper article, and the, um, the reporter said, "Man, you, you and I and I'm still working on. You know, it's like these layers that just keep peeling. It's like an artichoke to get to the heart of uh, of the issue. You got to keep peeling back layers and layers of leaves and information and." With every leaf, there's more leaves. There's more layers to the onion um, that you have to peel back. Uh, but I think you know, for some of the athletes that that um, you know that we've talked to, to whatever degree that a lot of them are shy to speak out, 
because I think they're afraid of getting uh, canceled, of losing their social media followers. Um, yeah, which is unfortunate. Um, so I losing think there's their some, jobs. Pardon? Still losing yeah. their jobs. That's still yeah. happening. You know, you guys are still not able to get their jobs because they speak out. We are. We know some. We've spoken with a bunch. Yeah, yeah, or yeah. So I think fear uh, or distractions. Yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm very frustrated by that personally because of we're talking about human lives. Uh, two months ago, I talked with a nurse in Appleton, Wisconsin, and the reason I talked with her is when I first started speaking out uh, 16 months ago, she told the reporter who wrote one of the first articles that I was lying, and specifically that I was lying about the the doctor put in putting an illegal do not resuscitate order on my daughter, Grace. And so why I spoke with her two months ago because that same reporter called me because the nurse called her and said, he's not lying. I'm the nurse in the hospital with my dad. I'm the power of attorney. I looked at his chart. There's an illegal DNR on him. And so I talked with her and I asked her, will you come on the air with me and share this? People are dying. And she said, no, I, I won't do that because I'm 66 years old. I'm a year away from retirement and I can't jeopardize that. I, I mean, it, that was mind blowing to me. Uh, you know, we, we have a chance here. We really have a chance to not let history repeat itself. And that's, you know, that's why I wanted you guys on. I, I just, it's two, two guys that have, you know, I've got stuff to, to lose. You guys really have stuff to lose, but you're doing it. Um, I want to give people some reflection as to where we came from and, you know, where we're going is actually worse, but I want to start with where we came from and why it's important to stand up. And then I'm going to ask you guys, the last question I have before I go into closing, which is, I'll, I'll, you can start processing that now, is if we all have a duty to do our part, what can the busy person do, the family person do that is working two jobs, has everyday stresses, what can that person do to um, at least do their part? So we're going to, first, Don, I'm going to have Don bring up uh, Governor Evers. He's the governor of Wisconsin. Back from March 25th of 20, he did the stay-at-home order. So, Don, can you bring that up on the screen? All right. So, I just want to point out a couple of things here just to show people what lies were were happening. So, Don, can you scroll down? Uh, all right. Hold on. Right there. All right. So, if you look at the third paragraph from the bottom of the first page, it says, whereas as of March 23rd, 2020, blah, 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 there's first the positive COVID cases. All right, well, we found out the PCR test is a lie. Then it says five Wisconsinites have passed away as a result of that paragraph. Well, that may or may not be a lie. We know that right now, 1.2 million Americans have lost their lives in hospitals with COVID as a diagnosis. We're number one in the entire world by far. Number two is India with 531,000. And India's population is four times that of the United States. So we know that the lion's share of those people with a COVID diagnosis in a hospital did not die of COVID, even though their death certificate said COVID. Then the next paragraph, it says that we're going to, we've got to do this because we're going to exceed the available healthcare resources. That's also, an, that's another lie. This is under the spirit of collectivism that they're trying to train into the um 
the medical colleges that we need to ration care. Then I want to share uh, something funny from this, or we'll go to page two. And towards the bottom of page two, uh, everybody should get a kick out of this. So the second to last paragraph, it says, individuals experiencing homelessness are exempt from this section. I mean, it was very kind of them to, if for the stay at home order, that if you're homeless, you don't have to stay at home. Yeah. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. It's so stupid. All right. So then you, <laughs> I hear you guys laughing that it's, it's so, it's like, you got to be kidding me. Um, so page three, I just want to hit on page three real quick. You see that what they did, non-essential businesses. Uh, I see this whole COVID thing as part of the mandate to close businesses down, small businesses. Of course, they let all the Walmarts of the world, the big businesses who are all in on this, they let them stay open. And of course, then on the bottom of page three, you see they there's a number of pages here, but you just want to hit these first three. They're closing down all the school systems and libraries. All right, then I'm going to have Don play a clip from Matt Truella. He's a pastor that uh, he he heads Mercy Seat Church in Brookfield, Wisconsin. He wrote the Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrates. And just to give you a perspective of what that's about. So when a law comes down that is not godly, so the mask mandate, the shop mandates, the local sheriffs have the ability to stop that. And that's a, a very timely application of the doctrine of the lesser magistrates. They do not have to obey an order that is not um, that is satanic. And so Matt wrote that book, the little clip I'm going to have from a sermon that he did um, two Sundays ago. It just talks about where we've where we've come. And so this is just about a minute long. Don, can you play that clip? Building businesses more important than ever. Didn't we learn that from all they did with the pre-tendemic, with the masking and the testing and the shots and people getting it all because I just can't lose my job. And the tyrants haven't gone home. They're continuing to build the infrastructure while everyone has returned, thinking all's good now and returned to their food and drink. They haven't gone home. They're building the infrastructure. They're tearing right under everyone's noses. These CBDCs, central bank digital currencies, from hell. A totalitarian's paradise. And they already know what a sheeple the American people are because they saw them all wear their masks and get their shots and get their tests. So I want both of your perspectives. I really like when we can leave people watching with something they can do. So not everybody can do what you're doing, um, what I'm doing, but they can do something. And you know what they just recently did, they, I'm talking about our our Congress and president on April 10th, they passed a law saying COVID is over. Well, that law was first illegal because they gave the authority to stop the public health emergency to the health and human services secretary. But anyway, it's part of the propaganda to get us thinking that things are over. It's not over. It's going to get substantially worse. And, you know, wait for it. If you don't believe that, wait for it. But what I want is some some solid things that the everyday Joe can do. So, Ken, why don't you go first? Yeah, you know, I, I think as a framing uh, to respond to that, you know, it's and we looked at the Milgram study. We talked about other influences. So I think to realize the level 
of intentional programming that we've that we've all been under. And so if you can see, uh, you know, through that, then the grat, you know, I'm grateful that I've been able to see, you know, through that. And uh, and then, of course, it's like, OK, what's my circle of influence? Some of us have wider, broader um, deeper circles of influence. Some of us have less to, to a lesser degree, but we all have people that we know, uh, family members, friends. And, uh, I've, you know, I've run into some very tough, frustrating, I get frustrated with people's, you know, I'll bring it up and I want to argue it. And, and, uh, but it's really an emotional, uh, basis. You know, there's a lot of, uh, of, of emotion wrapped up into this thing. And so, uh, I would say, you know, what helps me when, before I speak to people that I know, friends, neighbors, family is, is to realize I I'm in process and, and I've, it's taken me a while to get to this place and I'm still working on, you know, more information. It's, it's just the rabbit hole goes deep. Right. And so if I remember where I was, uh, four or five years ago, uh, and think about that's probably where a lot of those people are. And so, um, but I would say, um, have some courage to at least say something or to maybe throw out a question or to make a comment like, yeah, it has been really weird. Uh, these, these rules and, and, and regulations and people, uh, you know, dying of unknown cause and or athletes going down, or did you see that DeMar Hamlin deal go down? And, and of course, you know, all that's, you know, they've got justifications and the programming continues, but at least stop, start dropping breadcrumbs, you know, into people's lives, start dropping breadcrumbs with a lot of grace and love. Yeah, that, that's uh, good advice. It does take an awful lot of grace. Uh, my wife just went to a symphony last Saturday in Appleton and she was expecting to see Grace's violin teacher there because she's, she's part of it. And this was, I was really proud of the violin teacher and she learned that they required the symphony required everybody in order to play to be jabbed. And, um, so the violin teacher said, no, I, I am retiring from it. So that, I mean, that's a, it seems extreme, um, but that it, it's still going on. And my wife told me that there were several people in the symphony that had masks on. You know, so I mean, they obviously are are way on the left hand side of what we're talking about. But I mean, what I wanted to mention is about the violin teacher. I mean, she stood, she stood her ground and said, "No, I will not do that." And you know, we all Vera really talks about that specific thing relative to resisting, and I I like that. Uh, you know, the the little bit we can do to resist is good. John, what about you? Well, there's a line that's caught me of late is there's no, there was no exemption uh, for pandemics in the Bill of Rights. Okay, our Bill of Rights is beautiful, beautifully written. I mean, Constitution, beautifully written. There's no exemptions, none, for disease, pandemics, and they knew what those were. It wasn't like those didn't exist at the time. So first and foremost, we never have to give up our rights for any reason. Um, right now, I, like Vera said, resist and resist at all. At all. I mean, you're, you're walking down the street and people want to, uh, you, you first of all, take care of your own house. Uh, I think you got to keep talking to your kids. You got to keep talking to your grown-up kids, uh, your grandchildren. Um, keep being that education that they need to counterbalance the culture. 
Uh, I think you've got to resist. Like right now, ABC is off my list. I won't watch anything on ABC. Uh, I watched them censor a presidential candidate who was telling absolutely the truth, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And then they admit to it. And you're supposed to sit there and say, okay, you just broke the law and you censored. I mean, these are things that are just uh, anti-American and you admit to it. And we're supposed to acknowledge. And, and anyway, ABC is off the list. And so you can see that we can vote with our wallets. We can vote with our actions. Um, it's not that it isn't painful sometimes. I mean, I'd rather be at Gonzaga games. It's a small price to pay, really. It's going to a game. When you're dealing with life and death situations, as are everybody in the world, I'm giving up tickets. Big deal. But you're, you're not going to go unscathed. It's got, you got to be willing to give up something. You got to, one of Ken's words is, don't self-censor. Um, I, I know it's difficult. Like I, I, we used to we used to kind of tease my father-in-law because we'd be talking about the flowers in the backyard, and he'd somehow work in how abortion's wrong into every conversation. You know, we agree with him. It's good, but, but gosh, we didn't want to hear it when we're talking about the flowers. So I think there's some balance in there, um, and, and you got to figure it out. But I think that that you don't self-censor, and every opportunity you get to to kind of let people know where you're at, I think is important, and you can do that at any level that you're at. Well, you, you know, and adding to, to what you said, John, in, in a more of a, you know, as a college professor, and I was department chair of the social sciences department, I had a student come to me toward the end of my uh, term as that position, where a teacher had uh, provided extra credit if you were, if you got the, the shot, the, the no. COVID shot. Yeah, no, I know. And uh, so you're talking about a teacher incentivizing a medical procedure, you know, and and so I wrote, you know, I so what I did was I, I thought, wow, that so I went to the um, so now you have a religious issue because there might be some and, and the student actually had a religious exemption and asked if she, if she could provide the religious exemption as credit for that. And the teacher turned her down. So I went to the diversity, you know, the diversity um, department and I shared them that with them and said, you know, part of the cultural diversity is religion. And so, and, and they were outraged, even though they were very pro COVID shot, but they were outraged at, at the, um, at the, you know, at the uh, inequality and, and inequity in that. And then I went over to the dis student disability and talked to their um, uh, department lead, and they were outraged because you have people that might have physical reasons for not getting it, and and the extra credit, you know, was was slanted towards people that would be willing to do that, and uh, and so then I wrote up a letter and uh, and sent it to the deans and uh, human, you know, our HR department at the college, and um, you know, it's it's, it's uh, yeah, and they're not going to fire me because of that, right? I mean. Uh, because I did, uh, I did my homework and my due diligence and I wrote it up and I said, Hey, as department chair, you know, I, this is part of my responsibility and I framed it and it took a little time. And, um, but it's like, yeah, nothing, you know, so to have the courage in your sphere, whether it's friends or at work to be able to, you know, when those opportunities come to go, okay, this is, this is what speaking up for the truth is. This is what, um, you know, being on the right, I hate that term right side yeah, of history, no. but it's yeah, doing the right thing, you know, do, being on the right side of God, yes. you know. <laughs> well, I I, since you go ahead, go ahead, John. Oh, uh, no, I keep interrupting you, but I just might add, turn off the TV and read a book, turn off the TV yeah. and go play catch. Uh, 
don't give your kids cell phones. You know, make them go get a job. If they want a cell phone that bad when they get in high school, get a summer job, go get the cell phone, and then still restrict it. I, I mean, those those things are are just they're such remarkable tools. Well, their capability well beyond my ability to comprehend them, but they don't need them. And yep. uh, I don't know. Those are just a couple of thoughts. Right, those are those are fantastic thoughts. You know, since you brought up the religious exemption, Ken, this has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but I do want to explain so that people understand. So John mentioned about we have the Bill of Rights. So this whole idea of a religious exemption is what they try to get us in framing things in, I'm calling them dialectics. So we have you know, the person who gets the shot, then there's an exemption from the shot, but they're still in the shot dialectic. We do not need any exemptions. Right. God gave us the right to right. treat our body as a temple, and you can stand on that right. As soon as you think you've got to go down the path of an exemption, now you got programmed. This is part of the high-level programming. They program us into these... these um, different corrals and then we start debating about the validity of the exemption well my state has exemptions mine doesn't we don't even need to get into that debate because we can stand on our god-given right to our body so well one of the things that john and i and a handful of other athletes are are pooling together is we've created an athlete's health freedom declaration that that we're working on to get out to uh, society, which basically is like the Barrington Declaration, or, you know, it, it mentions all, the, and it basically says, hey, you have a right to decide what you will or will not put into your body. Period. You know, and, and, yeah, and so Period. we're working with less. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, I'm going to normally, when, so I'm going to move to closing. You guys will have the last word and certainly comment anything you want to say. You can tell about your podcast. But normally I take this time and I kind of wrap up everything in a nice bowl. But uh, I was given this clip uh, a couple of days ago by somebody who's following Grace's story. And so instead of me wrapping things up, I'm going to have uh, Jim Caviezel do it for me. So this is a six-minute clip. So hang in there. But this it, it's it's uh, appropriate because it really shares where we're at today and all of our responsibilities. So go ahead, Don, and then I'll come back to you guys. We are headed into the storm of all storms. Yes, the storm is upon us. Ladies and gentlemen, we cannot buy our security of one nation under God. Our freedoms in Christ, our Savior, from the threat of the devil any longer. There's no argument over the choice between peace and war. But there's only one guaranteed way you can have peace and you can have it in the next second. Surrender. Admittedly, there's a risk in any course we follow other than this. But every lesson in history tells us that the greater risk lies in appeasement. And this is the specter our well-meaning Christian liberal friends refuse to face. Our priests, our pastors, and now, sadly, even our Pope that his policy of accommodation is appeasement, and it gives us no choice between peace and war, only between fight and surrender. If we continue to accommodate, continue to back and retreat, eventually we will have to face the final demand, the final ultimatum, and what then? When Satan has told his own, he knows what our answer is going to be. He has told them that we're retreating under the pressure of his cold war, and someday when the time is right, to deliver his final ultimatum, 
Our surrender will be voluntary because you see by them we will have been so weakened from within. Spiritually, morally, economically, he believes this because from our side he's heard voices pleading for peace at any price. Or better read than dead, or as one commentator put it, he'd rather live on his knees with his mask on than die on his feet. And therein lies the road to war. Because those voices don't speak for the rest of us. You and I know it and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for. Well, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shot heard around the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. And our beloved dead, who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis, did not die in vain. Where then lies the road to peace, you say? Well, it's a simple answer after all. That you and I have the courage to tell our enemies there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which evil must not advance. And this goes for our beautiful, beloved Constitution as well. Just barely hanging in there by a lifeline. Do we even believe in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? You know, there's no coincidence why it's in that order. Because without your life, you have no liberty. And without your life, you have no happiness. That all men are created equal. Ladies and gentlemen, not born equal. Winston Churchill said that the destiny of man is not measured by material computations. When great forces are on the move throughout the world, we learn we are spirits, not animals. And he said there's something going on in time and space and beyond time and space, which, whether we like it or not, spells duty. My fellow Americans, you and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth. I will sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. We're at war now with the most dangerous enemy that has ever faced mankind and his long climb from the swamp to the stars. And it's been said if we lose this war, and in so doing lose this great way of freedom of ours, history will record with the greatest astonishment that those of us that have the most to lose did the least. To prevent it from happening, well, I think it's high time now we ask ourselves if we still even know the freedoms that were intended for us by our founding fathers. Every generation of Americans needs to know that freedom exists not to do what you like, but having the right to do what you ought. My fellow Christian warriors, set yourselves apart from this corrupt generation. Be saints. We weren't made to fit in. We were born to stand out. And that is the freedom that I wish for you. Freedom from sin. Freedom from our weaknesses. Freedom from the slavery that sin makes out of all of us. That is the freedom that is worth dying for. Kind of reminds me of the words that Mel Gibson first intoned in his Academy Award-winning film Braveheart when he said to his ragtag army, and I say to you tonight, I see before me a whole army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. You've come to fight as free men. And free men you are. What will you do without freedom? Will you fight? This man says no, we'll run and we'll live. Yep, fight and you may die. Run and you'll live. 
for at least a while. And dying in your beds many years from now, would you have been willing to trade all the years from this day to that for one chance? Just one chance to come back here and tell our enemies that you can take our lives, that you can never take our freedom. Every man dies. Not every man truly lives. You, 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 we must fight for that authentic freedom and live, my friends. By God, we must live. And with the Holy Spirit as your shield and Christ as your sword, may you join St. Michael and all the angels in defending God and sending Lucifer and his henchmen straight right back to hell where they belong. This storm is upon us. But not without Jesus, our rudder. And in the words of Reagan, evil is powerless if the good run of fate. God bless you. Now we're all responsible to occupy and push back until Jesus comes in the territory that we've been given. So uh, Ken, we'll have you go first with the final word and John, you can wrap things up. Oh, sure, I, I need to fall. I, I have to fall. <laughs> well, I, you know, I can't really add or say anything to, to what uh, Caviezel's already said, but I do want to, um, I want to thank you, Scott, um, and just acknowledge and recognize uh, the honor you bring your family, the honor you bring God, the honor that you bring uh, Grace uh, as, as her father, um, as a father that loved his daughter deeply and misses her, I can't imagine. But um, thank you for doing what you do and just love the honor that you give your daughter by standing up and doing this and dedicating your life to this. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad to do it. I'm humbled to be part of it. So thank you, Ken. All right, John. I can't top that. Uh, you know, Robert Kennedy always says, "Let's see you on the barricade." I, I'm glad to be on the barricade with people like you, Scott. And uh, you know, it's uh, it, it's an honor. So I'll, I'll I can't do it. Say it any better than Ken just said it. So thank you. Uh, bless you, and uh, keep up the great work. Well, same to you guys. It was really, really a gift to have you on today. Thanks for being on. Please stand by for further details. We return you now to your regularly scheduled program.